Would you pray with me? God, it is so good to be together again as your church, as your bride, as a people that you love deeply. And we are so grateful for that. We're grateful for songs like this that lift our spirits, that give us encouragement and courage. And God, I'll just, I'll confess for me and maybe for some others in the room that that song is easier to sing than it is to live out. It's easier to say, God, I'll lead you wherever you take me. I'll follow you. Our heart gets a little ahead of our head and our actions at times, God. So we're grateful for your forgiveness. Help us to live in a way that that song becomes true of us, that we follow you. And in that, we find hope and joy and peace. We pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells three parables in rapid-fire succession, and every one of those parables has something to do with seeds. He starts off by telling the parable of seeds that fell on four different kinds of soil. Then he moves on to a parable about a farmer who sowed his wheat crop, and in the middle of the night while he was sleeping, somebody came in and sowed weeds over top of it and just made a mess of things. The third parable is the one we want to look at today, and it's again about seeds this time a mustard seed the tiniest seed known to Jesus time and it was intended to help us think about to focus on how our faith grows and develops here's what Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field and though it is the smallest of all seeds yet when it grows it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. It's one of the shortest parables of Jesus, just two sentences long, but it's rich in meaning. Jesus here is teaching us that a strong faith develops not because we've had some kind of an epiphany in our life. That strong faith doesn't develop because we've discovered some secret that millions of Christians throughout the centuries have somehow missed, and our faith is instantly strong. It doesn't happen because when we accept Jesus, God gives us this IV that fills us with a strong faith. No. Instead, a strong faith grows slowly over time with the myriad of choices that we face in our everyday life. Um, I want to say good morning, especially to all of you, since this is our spring break, like week, and obviously none of you had the money or the time to get away. like everybody else, going to Florida and Mexico and Hawaii and Cleveland, um, which were the four I saw on Facebook this week. Why? I don't know that Cleveland's better than Chicago, so that we'll see. We'll find their regrets on Facebook this week. Uh, about a third of the way into Jesus' teaching ministry, he dramatically changed his teaching style. He was, for the first part of his ministry, direct, outright with the truth, and The gospel writers point to a very specific time in his ministry where he shifted to doing the majority of his teaching in parables. It was a way for Jesus to challenge people to listen more closely and to think about what he was saying, to dig through the teachings and figure out the truth that he was trying to convey to them. And in the process, it weeded out people who were following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Through the course of teaching in parables, the gospel writers say that Jesus' band of followers came down to this focused few who truly believed in his person and his message. If we're fair, we'll admit 
that some of his parables are confusing. They can be. They certainly were when he told them. There were people in the crowd who walked away scratching their heads. Even his closest followers, the 12 disciples, at times would pull Jesus aside after teaching in parables and just go, what was that about? They didn't get it. And even for us today, centuries later, some of his parables can be a little bit confusing. I think some of that confusion comes because we don't really understand the medium of the message. We don't understand how Jesus was using parables. And so as I thought about this week, how I could help us understand how to approach a parable every time we see it, I had this moment where I went, you know, Jesus' parables, not in content, but in principle, are a lot like Aesop's fables. Remember those? Um, And no, I don't mean this version of Aesop's fables. Anybody remember that from Rocky and Bullwinkle? Yeah. No, I'm not going to show it to you. Um, I actually thought about it, but no, we're not. Uh, You'll have to look it up on uh, YouTube. Um, Aesop uh, lived about 600 years before Jesus. And you do a little digging and you find out that he was this curious little man. He was a slave, probably brought up into Greece from uh, Ethiopia. He was a dwarf, and he was horribly disfigured. Something happened in, in the womb, and he just came out this broken vessel. And in that broken vessel was a tremendous amount of wisdom about life. In addition to writing some of the fables, he collected more that had been around for hundreds of years, and he was the first one to collect these truths about life into a collection of stories. And every one of his stories had something to do with animals that took on human characteristics. You remember these stories? Um, There was this lion who got help taking a thorn out of his paw by this benevolent mouse. There was a foot race between a tortoise and a hare. And in every one of his fables, Aesop was driving home one point, one principle, one value at a time. And for a lot of us, those are embedded deeply in us, even if we don't remember where they came from and we don't remember the story. I'm going to do a little experiment. Let's see if you can finish the moral of the story, okay? So you go... That wasn't helpful. It's like you didn't respond. Okay? You with me? All right. Okay. We have coffee IVs in the back if you need them. Um, So here's just a few of those. So from the tortoise and the hare, we learned the moral that slow and steady... See, you knew more than you thought. Uh, With the fox and the lion, we learned that familiarity breeds contempt. Good. The wolf in sheep's clothing teaches us that appearances are often deceiving. We learned what doesn't kill us only... Yeah, that's actually Kelly Clarkson, not Aesop. Um, But it's a good life lesson, right? Every one of Aesop's fables taught one central truth. And you kind of lose the plot line of the story if you try to make the parable or the fable say more than it does. There's just one truth. That's actually the best way to approach Jesus' parables. Every parable generally had one truth Jesus was trying to drive home. And I've made the mistake, and I've heard other people who teach, and even just in conversations, I've heard people make the mistake of trying to make everything in a parable mean something. Right? So if like if we took this one about the mustard seed, we go, oh, the mustard seed, and then the tree, and then, you know, the soil that it grew in, and then the atmosphere around it, and it just it just goes on and on. When Jesus just really meant one thing in those two sentences. Jesus didn't try to teach 
the entire gospel message in every parable. And that's really smart. One writer said, anybody who tries to tell you everything he knows in one paragraph is confused, confusing, and boring. Think about that the next dinner party you're at. So, what was Jesus' one point he was trying to drive home in this parable? Well, to make his point, he chose this tiny little mustard seed. Look how small that is. I grew up a little bit confused about this parable, I have to admit. I grew up on a farm, and and when I think about mustard, I think about those leafy, lettuce-like mustard greens, right? I didn't like to eat them, but I knew what they were growing up. So you have this great lettuce-like vegetable, and and granted, there is a stalk when the mustard goes to seed. There is a stalk that grows up out of it. it has a beautiful flower on it. But it is in no way capable of supporting birds who would land on it. It just snaps. Now, where Jesus lived, though, they grew a different type of mustard in addition to the plant. And it still grows there today. The seeds were similar in size. But when that seed grew up, it looked like this. Pretty different, right? And it's this tree that as you walk by it, you could actually smell what we would be familiar with, like that yellow mustard smell. And it could grow to be this bush-like tree that was as much as 15 feet high. Had a base in it that was a foot in diameter, the trunk of it. The smallest seed, Jesus was saying, the smallest seed known to man can become one of the tallest shrubs that you've ever seen. And Jesus was simply using this tiny, vulnerable, imperfect mustard seed to represent the humble beginnings and the great potential of our faith. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? For most of us, our faith really did have that very, very small beginning. It began for us with way more questions than we had answers. And to be fair, even decades down the road, some of us are still having those same questions that we'd love to get answered. For a lot of us, there was just no fanfare. There was no big miracle when we came to faith. Rather, our faith was birthed when those seeds were planted in us by a friend over a cup of coffee. The seeds of faith were planted in our heart when we encountered something difficult in life and we spent the night staring out a window asking God why and begging for answers. Over time, however they got planted, those little seeds took root and grew until we came to the point where our need for Jesus was greater than the questions we had and our lingering doubt. And our faith took its next step as we chose to believe in and follow Jesus. Can you remember the circumstances in which you came to faith? You remember the people and the the situations that put seeds of faith in you? We share a common narrative. Our faith always starts small, and if we are patient, if we are intentional, our faith will grow and gain strength as we follow Jesus. One day, one step, one decision at a time. It's that way for everyone that we look at as a hero of faith in the Bible. David is one of my favorites in the Old Testament, and he is best known to us as the warrior king of Israel who had this incredible, authentic faith, 
a faith that enabled him to conquer other armies, a faith that enabled him to trust God in very difficult circumstances, a faith that allowed him to believe in God's forgiveness even when he messed up in life, and he did quite often. David wasn't born with that faith. It wasn't some miraculous gift given by God. The seeds of faith were sown in him early in his life by a mother and a father who loved God deeply. And that faith grew throughout his young life as he faced challenges and obstacles and opportunities. He had ups and downs in his faith, successes and struggles in his relationship with God. And if you want a picture of what that looks like, you can read the book of Psalms. Because in addition to being a shepherd, in addition to being a king and a warrior, David was a gifted musician. And like most musicians, his struggles and his pain in life came out in his music. As a young man, probably late teens, early 20s, God looked down and saw how David's faith had grown and said to Samuel, this man will be the next king, the second king of Israel. And you would think that kind of a blessing would make you popular, would make people honor you and revere you as a future king. Instead, David became public enemy number one. He was a marked man. He was a threat to the current king of Israel, Saul. And so for years, Saul and his men pursued David, chased him all over Israel, trying to kill him, and by so doing, preserve Saul's lineage and legacy. In 1 Samuel 30, we find David hiding out in the desert. He has been running from Saul for quite a while, and he's managed to amass a small army of 600 loyal soldiers. One day, David and his men have gone out, they've fought this battle, and they've been victorious. And you can almost picture the cinematic display that takes place because they finish the battle and they're coming home. They're walking home from battle and they're celebrating. They've had a great victory that God's given to them. And as they get closer to home, I just picture them walking up this hill and when they get to the top of the hill and they look down on the city that is home to them, their hearts just break. Because while they were out fighting a battle, another one of their enemies, the Amalekites, had snuck around behind them, had gone into their homes, had gone into their village, had burned everything to the ground. There wasn't a single building left standing. And what's more, as they stood on that hill overlooking the town of Ziklag, as they looked at it, they realized there wasn't any life there. All the livestock was gone. And what's more important, their wives and their children were gone as well. Everything they owned, everything they loved, was gone. What would you do in a situation like that? How would your faith guide you if you lost everything? If I'm honest, I think I'd have the same reaction that David and his men had. The Bible says that David and his men wept aloud until they didn't have even the strength left to weep. You know that feeling? The feeling of a loss that buckles your knees and breaks your resolve? A mourning that comes from deep in your gut, not just some tears flowing down your eyes, but you 
feel it from here as you cry. As far as these men knew, their wives and children were dead, never to be seen again. And as quickly as the weeping relented, the men began to, ask, began to assign blame. And it was clear to all of them that David was at fault for what happened. They were so angry that they started talking about stoning David. The Bible says that happened because each one of them was bitter in their spirit because they'd lost their children. What do you do if 600 loyal followers have now turned against you? I mean, I've got over 1,000 friends on Facebook. I would not dare to call them loyal followers. But even if just those acquaintances all together turned against me, would you run? Would you fight back? Would you stand up and give a speech to those 600 men and try to convince them of all that you've done for them and all that God has already done for them? Think about it. Dig deep. How would your faith respond? Is it strong enough to sustain you? The Bible says that when David realized the scope of what was going on, the loss, and when he was done with his grieving and saw that the men were turning on him, David did what he typically did in his life. He withdrew from the men, got a little distance between him and them, and he prayed. The Bible says that as David prayed, he found strength in the Lord his God. And my tendency would have been to go back and argue, try to defend myself, or run. I mean, seriously, these are 600 highly trained special forces troops who want to kill you. They know how to kill you or just make you wish you were dead. But David didn't do that. Rather than rely on his own resources, David inquired of God, what's going on here, God? How do I deal with my grief and still follow you? How do I help these men to deal with their grief and still trust you? And as he prayed, he got strength. And as he prayed, he got clarity. With God's direction, he went back and he rallied his men. And they headed out. They found the Amalekites celebrating. <laughs> Camped in a valley, celebrating the plunder of conquering David's village. David's men were so weary from battle already, so weary from the grief, 200 of them had to stop halfway through the journey. They didn't even make it to this point. So now he's standing with 400 men. And with God's strength, they engaged the Amalekites. And the Bible says they fought for 24 hours straight. And they rescued their families. David's faith had grown slowly over time from that inauspicious beginning as a shepherd boy through one decision, one challenge at a time, through all his mistakes and all of his successes to the point where his followers and his friends found shelter and strength and courage in the shadow of David's faith. I think his faith journey illustrates for us this parable of the mustard seed brilliantly. Look, every single one of us wants to be at a place where we can say, I have a faith that's like that mustard tree, solid base, big branches, I'm strong. And every single one of us started 
with the faith of a mustard seed, just tiny. And the truth is, we're somewhere in that journey this morning. Somewhere between a seed and a tree. And the challenge for us is that we live in this age of instant gratification. And Jesus here is encouraging a patient, persistent faith. Many of you know uh, that three weeks ago, uh, my dad died after a long illness. And um, I'm really grateful for the notes, for the Facebook posts, for your phone calls, for the cards, for the flowers, for everything you have done to encourage Connie and me in this time. In the three weeks since he died, we've been going through some of his things, and it's really been fun to just discover some things. One of the things that I'll hang on to for a long, long time is that my dad kept handwritten letters from my grandmother. That seems so long ago. It was from the mid-50s when they got married, their early years of marriage, and she just wrote him these letters. I mean, it's a lost art. She picked out beautiful stationery, and it looks like she took time to write slowly so that not just the stationery, but the words on the page were beautiful and thoughtful and meaningful. And then she'd drop that letter in a mailbox in eastern Kentucky, and it would take a week to get to my parents in Cincinnati. We're impatient. We get frustrated when our text messages take more than a couple of seconds to reach people halfway around the world. We complain about how long the microwave takes to heat up our food. Seriously, Tuesday night I got frustrated because the quinoa took 90 seconds in the microwave. We're impatient. We're a hurried and impatient people, even in our faith. We somehow expect that we can plant seeds of faith and grow them and harvest the fruit all in an hour-long worship service on Sunday morning or a few conversations. When the truth is, spiritual growth cannot be hurried. A mustard seed doesn't grow overnight. Neither does a resilient, strong faith. Our faith grows when we choose to dig into God's Word when we try to understand his heart for us, when we pour over the Bible, which I believe is God's love letters to us. Our faith grows when we choose to stop, to pray, to talk with and to listen to God in prayer. Our faith grows as we choose to open up and share our heart and our life with friends to live in a place of authenticity that allows us to talk about our struggles as well as our successes. Over the last three weeks, I've been thinking about our couples group that we're a part of, and it seems like every one of those five couples has been through something really challenging over the last month. I know I have. And I can't wait to be together with them tonight. Just to encourage each other, just to pray for each other, just to be together and hang out in the middle of the chaos that life can become. Our faith grows slowly over time when we make choices to follow God's leading in the ordinary stuff of life. 
Every choice we make helps our heart grow closer to God's heart and it gives us strength. And if we're persistent and if we're intentional, I think we'll be surprised one day when we wake up and we realize that our faith isn't a mustard seed anymore. It's grown into this magnificent tree. It's mature. It's fully developed. And we'll look around and be surprised at the people who are able to gain shelter and strength and courage and the shadow of the faith that God has built in us on our journey.